All right, good evening, everyone. Thanks for coming back tonight. There's a lot going on, so I'm competing with quite a few things. So I realize you being here is an act of grace and mercy. Tonight, I'm looking to share the Word of God with you. I mean, obviously, this is what we do, but I believe God has given me something to say, and I'm praying that the person who needs to hear it is actually here. You know, I, as many of you know, um, I teach connection class here. I'm a seminary student at Karen, and I do a number of things. But what I do, what's most important to what I do, what God has energized me to do, what God has preserved me to do thus far, is to preach Christ and Christ crucified. And that is what we'll look to do tonight. But we'll be doing it from the Old Testament, which may be, for some of you who are Bible aficionados, might say, how do you preach Christ out of the Old Testament? Preferably, we'll get there. But if you will tonight, I'd like for you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel chapter 24 has a cheat sheet is the last chapter of 2 Samuel. The next page, you'll go into the next book. So while you do that, I'll pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that you have brought us here for this time. We pray, Lord, that you be pleased with our commitment, pleased with our sacrifice and accepting of our offering. Father, we pray, Lord, that you will be the speaker tonight, that we will be out of your way to receive what you've given us, that I will be out of your way to say what you want to be heard. So God, we ask that you bless each and every one of us, that the words that you have given us will be uplifting, will be corrective, and be comforting. We simply ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. 2 Samuel chapter 24. Now, this is quite a long chapter, so I'm not going to read the whole chapter as you might be used to, but what we will do is take it in sections, because there's three components here that are important in the life of Samuel and the message that we have from Samuel to our contemporary lives. In this chapter, we see kind of the end of Samuel's life, at least coming down to the end of his ministry. In this chapter, we see the beginning, if you will, of a new um, covenant with the people of God that Samuel will be instrumental into, okay? In this chapter, we see the heart of the matter in our relationship with God. What is that? The heart of the matter in our relationship with God is that there is no better place to be than to be in the hands of God. Let me say that again, because I know, I know some of you have heard that. I know some of you have said that. But let me say that so that it really sinks in deep. There is no better place to be than to be in the hands of God. And that's, that's a statement that we find comfort in, but we can also find terror in that statement. We, we can also find some discomfort in that statement. 
And, said, you know, and David is going to point that out to us, how this works. So here we go. Chapter 24. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. For the king said unto Joab, the captain of the host, which was with him, go now through all the tribes of Israel from Dan, even to Beersheba, and number ye the people, that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said unto the king, now the Lord thy God add unto the people how many soever they be, a hundredfold, and that the eyes of my Lord and the king may see it. But why doth my Lord, the king, delight in this thing? So let's just park right there for a moment. So we have a setting right here that there's something we first must address before we can go further. And that's the very first verse that says, and again the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. We have an awkward thing here where what essentially happens is God himself prompted David to do this thing. And as we go to it, you'll realize what the conflict is there. But it was God who said to David, count the people. It, it was God that set David up for this fall. I would love to get into that. But for the sake of time, we cannot get into that theology right now, but it will come to play as we do this. But let's decide to say this. God's anger was once again upon Israel. Why was God normally angry against Israel? Because Israel constantly and consistently rebelled. They got into a good place. They forgot about God. They get into a bad place, they run to God. They get into a good place, they forget about God. They get into an awkward situation, they run to God. See, even from the beginning, after all this conquest that David has done, after all of this witness that God has provided to the Israelites through now, they still forget that being in God's hands is the place to be. They consistently forget that. How often do we forget that? See, the challenge is, do we forget that? Do we understand that? And how do we, how do we rectify that? So David makes this count. You may have heard this story before. It's usually titled, The Senseless Census. That David goes out and counts the people of his land. For what reason? We don't know, but we do know. Let me say it like this. In the church today, there is a, I would call a type of cancer. I call it a cancer because it is pervasive. It's all the way through. It has infected our church the people of God, since the beginning. We can go far as back as Adam and see this cancer begin. It has monastitized, spread all throughout 
churches, church history. We call this cancer pride. We, we, we call this cancer type of pride. See, because one of the things that drives us, that jams us up, is our pride. Now, I know, I know many of you say, I'm extraordinarily humble. I don't really wrestle with pride. But you do. You do. Because the time that someone says something to you that you don't like, your emotions ramp up. How dare them talk to me like that? The time that someone challenges you on something that you cannot have, your emotions ramp up. Who are you to tell me I can't have this? The moments that someone tells you that so-and-so said you can't do this, you question, the, you question the person, the messenger. Because who are you to say that? You see, this is how Satan was able to deceive Eve. Because he was able to say, you surely will not die. God is really trying to hide something from you. And in their pride, in their anxiousness to be like God. They failed. They went and ate of the tree. And now this thing has passed down from all of us. David suffered from the same pride. Oh, you don't think so? Let's think about it. Was it not David who, as king, saw a woman across the way and said, I like her. I'm the king. I should have her. Was it not David that in that same instance said, let's try to set her husband up to be killed and finally just went on to make sure it happened? See, this is David saying that I'm the king. I have what I want. I take what I want. And my pride is where it should be. And of course, God needs to push him back down. So here we have in this situation where David takes this count. Now we know that David has conquered many nations. We know that David has won many wars and he has built this kingdom up into this grand thing called Israel. And, you know, Saul had his 1,000, David has his 10,000s. See, he already knows the size of his kingdom. But what's that going to say to him when he finds out what this count is? Look how big my kingdom is. Look what I have conquered. Look what I have done. Look what I have made. Look what I have created. But there is an inherent problem with that. And we have to go back to Exodus chapter 30, verse 12. You see, when God laid out the nations, <clears throat> when he put together his people, he said, you are my people. He told Moses, they are my people. And he makes this statement. He says this. He says, chapter 30 of Exodus. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, when thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, 
then shall they be given every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord. When thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them, when thou numberest them. God tells Moses, he says, you're going to take account of the people. You're going to make a sacrifice for the people because they're my people. They're my people. And the only people who should be counting these people, which are my people, is God alone. So now, given this law, given this promise that he says to Moses, given this, this, this precept, David, what does David do? Count God's people and take credit for God's people. So his folly was that he took the idea that he has created this nation through war, through prisoners, through negotiations, through marrying into other nations, and created this nation that he has called God people that he's created. You see, David now entered into what we would call a prideful position. He positioned himself to believe that he was king, and because he was king, everything that was happening with the nation of Israel was by his doing. You see, this is what we would say David's beginning of his separation from God. In his prideful position, he had forgotten the person who put him there. In his prideful position, he had forgotten the God that protected him from the lion, the God that protected him from the bear, the God that protected him from Goliath, the God that protected him from Saul, who was chasing him in the wilderness. He forgot that because he's king now. He's the big man in the area. He's the conquering king. He's the king of the reputation that the nations around him fear. And he forgot. And in his forgetfulness, he breaks the law of God because his pride got in the way. So let this be a warning to us from our forefather, David. What does pride do to us? What does sin do to us? What does disobedience do to us? What is it that the things that we know not to do that we do, the things that we should do that we don't do, it creates separation because we are Americans. And we have rights. We have freedoms. And no one can tell us what we can and cannot do. See, that, that has invaded our mind. That has invaded our thinking. Yet we are, we call ourselves, as we sit in these pews, the people of God. So as we are the people of God, then everything we have, everything we own, everything that we will have, have had, belong to God. Our very lives belong to God. Our very emotions belong to God. How we treat each other belongs to God. The things that we say and do are a reflection of the image of God that we are made in. So the best place that we could ever be in is in the hands of God. And each time we step out of that, we find ourselves in danger, much like David had. It's a prideful position. It's a prideful position that will result 
and separation. You say, Tony, how do you mean? How does that result in separation? Well, let's move on. Get out of Exodus. So they went out, as he was told, Joab, and did the count because he's the king's man. He works for the king. After a couple months, nine months, a little over nine months, found out 700,000 men. I'm sorry, 800,000 men. Let me read it. And Joab gave up the sum of the number of the people unto the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men that drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. But suddenly this thing happens. And David's heart smote him after he had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly, and that I have done, and now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of my servant, of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. David now is in a position of repentance. He realizes that he has sinned. He realizes that the motivation for his count was simply about him looking like a great king. Look how big my nation is. Let me bring it home. Look how much money I have in the bank. Look how many cars I have in my driveway. Look how big my house is. Look at how I have risen to the pinnacle of my job. I started in the mailroom, and now I'm in the executive suite. Take a look at me. And see, David started as a shepherd boy, and now he's the king of one of the biggest nations at the time. But David realizes something's wrong here. David realizes that his sin has offended God. See, let me, let me tell you something about being that person who is after God's own heart. When you have a relationship with somebody, you immediately can know when you have offended that somebody. You, you, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt instantly when you have offended that somebody. When you know people, you know what encourage them, and you know what discourage them. You know what they want to hear, and you know what they can't stand hearing. See, when you've built a relationship, when you realize that this person is with you, taking care of you, watching over you, helping you, and you offend them, you know it. You know it. You know it physically, you know it visually, and you even know it spiritually. You do. Because human beings have a spiritual connection. And those of us that are saved are bound by the Spirit. So you know, David has a connection with God. If you don't believe me, read about 30% of the Psalms, and they will tell you the deep connection that David had with God. So it's well within reason 
that David would immediately know his sin, the anger that he has drawn up in God. But here's another crazy thing about this whole thing. You say, what real reason did David have to count the nation? Was he about to levy taxes? Did he know how to parse, concern about parceling up lots? He simply just wanted to see how big his nation was. So he risked his relationship with God to disobey the commandment that was given to Moses to see how big his nation was. But here's the other thing that I found that was pretty funny. Joab. You know who Joab is? Captain of his army. But that's not the question of who he is. The question is, how long has Joab known David? Joab has been with David virtually from the beginning. You could almost say Joab is David's best friend. You, you, David, Joab goes back to the complicity, to the conspiracy that helped set up David to get Bathsheba. He put Joab in the middle of that. Joab goes back a long ways with David. So Joab knows David. He's the man that's next to him. He's the man that's protecting him. He's the man that's advising him. So Joab knows David. So if anything else, we know where David's heart was by Joab's reaction to this request. And Joab says, essentially says, the nation's great. Yes, you have a big nation. Why do you want to do this? What, what, what good is this? I, I like to think that Joab pleaded with him to say, you sure? And he probably said to him, say, you know, Dave, that's a lot of work. But he tried to plead with him on all kinds of levels. His best friend says to him, that's not a good idea. It's not worth it. How many times did a person that knows us the best, advise us, and we ignore it. Come on, man. If you're anything like me, it's a daily occurrence. The person that knows me the best, my wife, advises me on things, and I say, okay, what do you know? I know what I'm doing. Of course, those words never actually leave my mouth, you know, because that would be a bigger problem because I might be stupid, but I'm not crazy. <laughs> you know? But no, seriously, we get advice from the people who God has put in our lives to correct us, to course correct us, to help us, to be a, another voice outside of our own head so that we may walk this straight and narrow road. And yet, that is the voice we, res we respect the least. That's the voice that we listen to the least. Until after disaster, after disaster, after disaster, and then finally you say, I think I should listen. Take this advice to heart. Joab's David's best friend telling him, this is not a good idea. But 
Let's look at it. See, when we're separated from God, we are lost. We're in a dark place. We're in a murky place. It's hard to see and navigate. So whatever common sense Joab was giving him, David could not see it because he was separated from God. The light of God was not shining, and he could not see his path forward. So he didn't listen. He was not able to hear Joab. And he makes this count. And now he's sad. Now he's walking around saying, I should have listened. I should have listened to that guy. I knew it. I should have paid attention. And Joab is probably standing there, just like me. Joab's the king. I mean, David's the king, so he's not going to save us so much. And says, I'm sorry. Because you can't say anything. But let's move on. So we have now David's repentance. Let's move on. Chapter 11, I mean, 2 Samuel 24, 11. For when David was up in the morning, the word of the Lord came unto the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say unto David, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. So Gad came to David and told him and said unto him, So seven years of famine come unto thee in thy land. Or wilt thou flee three months before the enemies, thine enemies, while I pursue thee? Or that there be three days pestilence in the land, now advise and see what answer I shall return to him and send me. This is the key to the passage right here. David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let us fall now into the hands of God, into the hands of the Lord, for his mercies are great, and let me not fall into the hands of men. Right there is the heart of the message. David realizes that it is better for him to be in the hands of God than anywhere else. See, he's given three options. He's given three options. So the first option was three years of famine in the land. Land would be famine. People will die of hunger, starve. No food, crops will probably die. Land of famine. The problem with this is that with this option, the people would have been punished, but not David. See, because David's the king. He has resources. He has friends. He could get stuff shipped in from other nations from all over the world, and the castle would be fortified and, and, and full. So that would really be not a punishment to David. So the second thing was three months on the run from his enemies. That's not really a punishment. It might be uncomfortable. David goes to the winter castle. His mighty men will protect him for three months. We've already known that David can bear under duress for three months. So it's not really a punishment, is it? But three days of pestilence in the land, that's the kick right there. 
See, because no matter how powerful David is, no matter how, how rich David is, he wasn't going to get through COVID. He was not going to get through the pestilence. He was not going to beat the smallpox, the bubonic plague, whatever pestilence was coming along that day. David had no means to protect himself from that. So he knew he had to suffer amongst with his people. And David also said, listen, God will be in control of this plague. In no situation will man have any say how this will go. You see, because even though it would be a famine, men could come bring food in. Men could deny him food. Him running through, running from his enemies. Men come protect him. Always be some kind of hand that David could offset the severity of the problem in this person. But he had no way, no way of protecting himself from that pestilence. It would only be God that would keep him. And let's think about this some more. What did God say about counting the people? You count the people, they make their ransom, there'll be no pestilence. David breaks that law, and sure enough, God being a God of his word, pestilence. You see, God is true to his word, men and women. God makes promises and keeps promises. God has promised to keep us for all eternity if we endure. God promised that there'll be a savior, and he sent it. And he simply asked us to be faithful. He simply asked us to be obedient to his word. Not to step away, but to constantly keep him forward. It's a God of promise. So now David's repentance is the sacrifice that must be made. And let me say this to you. Be not deceived. Your sin does not just affect you. Your sin affects you and everybody else in your circle. You don't believe me? Ask my friend Jonah when he got on that boat to Tarsus and the whole boat got in trouble. Where they were saying, what has brought this on us? Your sin will affect everybody in your circle. You see, husbands, your sins against your wives and family will affect your children. Your sins against your children will affect generations. Your sins at your job will affect your livelihood and how you're able to take care of your family. Your sin will affect everybody around you. You may think that you can do something independently and nobody knows. It is a secret. It is hidden. You think you're the only one that knows, but your behavior, your work to maintain that lie will make you distant. People won't know how to talk to you, and it will affect everybody around you. The whole nation was under pestilence. Some of these folks are sick and have no reason, what, idea of what happened. Take this message from them. 
15, so the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning even to the time appointed. And there died of the people from Dan even to Bathsheba, 70,000 men. And when the angel of the Lord stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord repented of him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, it's enough. Stay thy hand. Stop. It's enough. Because there we find the grace of God. There we find that even in God's wrath, even in his anger, he extends his grace to us where that we may suffer, but we survive. We may suffer, but we survive. Whereas God had every right to destroy the nation. He had every right to put David down. In fact, he may almost have been required to because they broke this covenant that he had with Moses. Yet his grace extends. You see, I liken that to Jesus at the Lord's Supper, and Judas gets ready to go betray him. And God dips the bread, extends it to Judas, because that first morsel is the morsel to the honored guest. And he extends his grace to Judas, even though he knows that Judas is about to betray him. This is God's extension of his grace. So even in our worst situations, even in those situations that we say death is at the door or destruction is around the corner, we can't see a way out of this. God is extending his grace because the best place to be is in the hands of God. There's no other place to be. So there we have it. God stops the angel that is standing on the threshing floor of Aruna, where the temple will be built from destroying all of Israel. And David repents. But see, repentance, and this is going to be awkward, but you bear me out. Repentance is the step, but there also must be a dedication to God. You see, we were not saved to be saved. We were saved to do the will of God. See, we all know Ephesians 2.8, but we kind of slip up on Ephesians 2.9. For we were created in his workmanship unto good works. See, in our salvation, in that extension of grace, God says, now you're part of my family. You are here to do my will. I've created you to be my light. Isn't, that, isn't this why he separated Israel light, Israel out, to be the testimony to the world of who he is? It's exactly why he entered into that relationship with you. Or, or do you think that God entered into a relationship with you because you were such a good person? You were pretty. You're a handsome guy. You're a well-dressed man. You're rich. God doesn't need any of that. What he needs is people with a heart towards him. What he needs are saved people who go out to help create other saved people. What he needs is disciples who go out to go out to help create other disciples. 
This was the call. David was supposed to be the king that was going to be the king that promoted God throughout the history of the world. And every time David stepped away, God took a knock. And David realized that, and he had to reposition himself. So in his purposeful repentance, from his position of pride, he now has to make a covenant with God, a deal with God. David spake unto the Lord when he saw the angel that smote the people, verse 17. And he said, Lo, I have sinned, I have sinned, I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let thy hand, I pray thee, be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day, and so I'm going to go up, rear an altar unto the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And David, according to the saying, Gad went up, has the Lord commanded. And Aruna looked, saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out, bowed himself before the king and on his face upon the ground. Aruna said, Wherefore, my lord, the king comes to his servant. And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee, to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. Of course, Aruna's natural reaction would be this. Said David, let the Lord thy king take offer of what seems good unto them. Behold, here are the oxen, threshing for instruments, the other instruments for the oxen for wood, all these things that Aruna has king, give unto the king. And Aruna said unto the king, the Lord thy God accepted. But David did this strange thing. He said, and the king said unto Aruna, nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God, that which cost me nothing. So David brought the threshing floor and the auction for 50 shekels of silver. David says, I have to buy this from you because I'm sent here to make sacrifice. See, if Aruna, if David had accepted those instruments, all of that material from Aruna, it would not have been David's sacrifice. It would have been Aruna's sacrifice. And David simply would have just re-gifted it. So David says, I have to buy it from you because I cannot sacrifice to the Lord that which costs me nothing. I cannot sacrifice to the Lord that which costs me nothing. See, it is inherent for something to be called a sacrifice to have a price, to have a value, to have a value that you don't easily want to give up. Because if it's not, if it's easy to give up, it's not a sacrifice. Like in some cases, it's a blessing. I love to give up some of this stuff. It's not a sacrifice. Cannot sacrifice to the Lord that which costs me nothing. As you know, many of you know, I took custody of my two grandchildren. I get asked about that all the time. I get asked about that all the time. You know, I, they say, Tony, 
why would you at this age take not one, but two children? And, well, you had it made. Why would you come out of retirement, because your children are grown, and take custody of two babies? They're not even two yet. And I say, yeah, it's crazy, but God did this great thing for me in my life. So I won't sacrifice to him that which cost me nothing. You know, many of you know I'm in school. And I'm not a young guy. So my classmates ask me because, you know, I'm 25, 30 years older than most of my classmates. I might be at least 15 years older than my professors. And they look at me and ask me, why would you go through this right now? Well, you know, what are you doing? What are you going to do with this? So I think God has called me to teach, to do some things. And I won't sacrifice to God. That would cost me nothing. You know, so, you know, you have to think about it in these terms of like, what does God mean? What is your position of worship? How do you understand this? You know, I get asked even further, Tony, you have two infants in your house. You're in the middle of seminary. Why on God's green earth would you say now's the time to start a school at your church? Don't you have enough? Are you crazy? I said, yeah, it does seem crazy, but I believe this is what God asked me to do. And I will not sacrifice to God that which costs me nothing. See, David's position of worship was his repentance and his dedication. And he knew that his sacrifice had to cost him something or it's not sacrificial. So I submit to you tonight, as you consider the pathways of your life, to take a page out of David's life and the incidents and trials and tribulations that go through our lives, that you look at these, is there any point in my life or even now, am I taking a prideful position? Have I gotten to the point that the things that have happened or accomplished that God's given me, am I thinking that I did it or am I giving God credit for allowing me to do it? Am I thinking this is through the hard work that I have or is this through the grace that God has given me? And if so, perhaps you need to purpose yourself, dedicate yourself to a real repentance to ask God for forgiveness for taking credit for his work. To ask God for forgiveness for taking ownership of his grace. Because we're not here because we're here. We're here because God has graced us to be here for a purpose. And we, we want to understand that. And all of us should be in a position of worship. We should always be striving for forgiveness and restoration. We should always be striving to walk with God in the same way that Adam walked with him in the cool of the garden. Yeah, things are going to have to happen for that to be, come to full fruition. I'll be honest with you, but that is our goal. 
I need Christ in my life every day. I can't do it on my own. For 20 years, I tried to do it on my own. That's why I'm in school now and not then. It required repentance. It required humility. It required to realize who do you think you are, Tony? That you think you're going to walk this walk without God. So we must always be striving. You see, because when David purchased that altar, he made two sacrifices. One for fellowship, one for forgiveness. And as we offend one another, we got to position ourselves two ways. One for forgiveness, one for fellowship. Because I often get forgiven, but they still not talking to me for another week. <laughs> because you lost the fellowship. And David made two sacrifices that day. Burnt offering and a peace offering. One for forgiveness, one for fellowship. To restore the fellowship. These are points that we can extract from the life of David in the Old Testament. It is the grace of God that has brought us here. It is the sacrifice of his son that allows us that we're always in a position for God to be in our lives. And I leave you with this. If you desire to be pleasing to God, then put all things in his hands. Because everything you know, everything you own, Everything you have been, everything you will be, the best place, the place it's always been, is in his hands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have given us these words that we may learn by. Father, we're encouraged because you are a great God, a God who has foreseen and planned our lives, a God who has given us a privilege to know you and to face you, to come to you individually and one-on-one -on -one with our own requests. We're privileged to know you, Lord, that you're a God that cares for us. We pray, for, Lord, for the strength that we may walk uprightly with you. We pray, Lord, that our own minds not get away from us, that we'll be constantly focused on you. So we ask, Lord, that you would be pleased with our offering. We ask, Lord, that these words were your words and that they would pierce and penetrate the heart of each and every person here. We thank you, Lord, that you are our God that cares enough for us. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. If you haven't done so already, please fill out a digital connection card so we know how to better serve you this week. For encouragement throughout your week, you can listen to past sermons by searching Open Bible Baptist Church on the Apple Podcast or Google Play Store. If you'd like to give today, you could give online at openbiblenj.org. Thanks again for joining us today. We'll see you on the next broadcast.